Okay, we are going to try to do something that I've tried to do other times and have failed, but we're going to try to cover two chapters today, uh, 15 and 16. Chapter 15 is pretty short, and we should be able to get through it fairly quickly, and so I think we'll be okay this week to, to do that. But we, uh, we're moving into uh, the, the final set of sevens, all right? So there's three, fe- three sets of seven, right? And we did the other two sets a long time ago. We had the three, or the seven seals, and we had the seven uh, trumpets. We're finally coming to the seven bowls. As Mr. Raymond pointed out, only four of them are on your, or five. How many are them on there? Five. Got five bowls on, on the thing. Um, we'll, I'll show you the rest of the picture whenever we get to it here in just a little bit. Um, Let's read together chapter uh, 15 first, um, and then we'll discuss it uh, briefly and then get into chapter 16 where most of our lesson will be. Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image And the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. All right, so chapter five, five, 15 is clearly just setting us up for the, the pouring out of the bowls, right? Um, and so just as a reminder, we, we return to, to this three set of sevens. We've had the seven seals. They were broken open, the different things that, events that happened there, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. And just as a reminder, I know you've heard me say it a bunch, but um, uh, these, aren't, these aren't chronological, meaning this happened, then this happened, then this happened. We, you know, we hear, then I saw... Um, but this is really just a description of how often he sees these events. And so really what we're seeing, what we're hearing is a repetition of the same events. Uh, one of the ways that uh, Reddish, um, one of the guys that I'm reading for this study, um, says, he says, in a sense, all three judgments, meaning the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, all three judgments, are, um, judgment scenes are taking place on different parts of a stage. All right, so that's why we see it is is and there, there's obviously a, a lot in between them that takes place, but but what the argument is is that um, because there's so much overlap in the way that each of the trumpets and the bowls are described, they line up with the seals so well, they line up with each other so well um, that it's it's really a repetition of it and it's an intensification of it throughout. So the the trumpets have some spaces that are a lot more intense than the seals, and what we're going to see is that the seven bowls. Um, uses uses even stronger language um, and, and is even more intense than the trumpets. Um, the point is is that um, uh, John is is visioning the last of the judgment, and, and really in the end, at the end of each of them, the end of the seals, the end of the trumpets, and the end of the bowls, we hear that this is the final judgment. This is it, and so we hear that about the seals. This is the final judgment, and then it's like, oh well, there's trumpets. 
Oh, this is the final judgment. Oh, well, there's bowls now. And so we hear that language. And so what, it, what that tells us is, is that, that John's not saying, oh, well, actually, it's not the final. And here's some more stuff. Or oh, actually, it's not the final. But rather, it's just repeating it, um, intensifying it, giving us as many visuals as we can possibly take in. Um, a, a really an overload of symbols and visions throughout. And so that's what this is. And so we're, we're coming back to that. Um, so let's talk about chapter 15 just briefly. Um, we talked about these. I think it's so interesting that the description of those that are on the sea, on the other side uh, of the sea of glass, they're um, uh, they're on sort of the other side, is the way it's described. They have conquered. Okay, they've conquered. Now we remember from previous chapters. What does that mean? What does it mean that they've conquered? Um, it's a it's it means that they've died. Actually, <laughs> um, that those who have conquered, we're told in Revelation, are those that have died. They're the martyrs. They're the people who have died for their faith, and we talked about. So, what does that look? What does that mean for them to be conquerors? We talked about two chapters ago, and then last the last lesson, so two lessons, the past two lessons, we talked about how one ends as if the beast, right, the whole unholy trinity, which we'll talk about some more, um, the unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts. Um, it seems as if they win, uh, and by human standards, they seem to have won. But what we're told in Revelation is that they're actually the ones who have conquered. And it's, they've conquered by the blood of their testimony, right? By the blood of the, the, the lamb, right? And the word of their testimony is the language that's used. So in other words, they've stayed faithful even to the point of death. And that means that they are conquerors, right? That's how the lamb's army conquers, by being faithful even to the point of death. And so we hear about them that have conquered. And they're on the other side. They're on the, the, the other side of the sea of glass. And they are the ones who conquered specifically the beast and its image, and the number of its name. All right. So, just as a reminder, we don't we're not hearing these as literal. They are symbols. They are symbolic. Um, they conquered by their death. What seems to be like a defeat of the Lamb's army is revealed to be a defeat of the beast. Now, remember, the beast is a parody. We talked about how it's a parody of the 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 unholy Trinity is a parody of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, you have dragon, beast, and uh, and and the second beast. And so the, the first beast, whenever we see the beast, he's, they're referring to, he's referring to the first beast. Um, the, the first beast is a parody of Christ. Um, and, and specifically, John, clearly, and again, we can go back to this. We're going to get to it when we get to chapter, uh, chapter 18 or 17, I believe, where the beast is specifically described as Rome. Um, he's very blatant about that. It's the, it's the, um, the seven hills, right? And, and I mentioned how that's referring to Rome. So for, for John, it's Rome. The first beast is a parody of Christ. It is Rome and Rome's uh, Caesar, okay? Caesar claimed to be Lord. So when we say that Christ is Lord, whenever the early church said Christ is Lord, they were, they were proclaiming something that, that Romans fundamentally had a problem with because they would say, no, Caesar is Lord. And so, so um, Christians in the Roman Empire were saying Christ is Lord. That means Caesar is not Lord. And so the parody of Christ then is Rome or Caesar, someone, any worldly power who claims divine status or mandate. Okay? And so, it, so for John, that's Rome in the first century. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us now that the Roman Empire is, is long gone, right? It's still the same for us. For us, it's any worldly powers that claim divine status or mandate. That's who the beast is. Um, the image, um, to go back, I, I kind of made the argument that the image that the beast makes and that the other beast forces or tries to get everybody to worship, I believe that's a parody of the church. It's the cult of the emperor, the imperial cult, that, that part of the Roman uh, society that said that you need to worship the emperor, right? It went so far as to say the emperor is, a, is like a god and you need to worship him. 
And so the, the cult of the emperor, as opposed to the church, it's a parody of the church um, for John. And so that encourage, that, that's, that's what the image represents, right, is, is the, the parody of the church, which is um, uh, the, uh, the imperial cult, so claiming that the, the empire, emperor and, and empire are worth worshiping. And then the number, remember the, the scary number, 666, we talked about it. Um, it's a parody of the seal of the Lamb. I love, I love making this point that we hear a lot about the, the mark of the beast. We don't hear hardly anything about the mark of the lamb, but the mark of the lamb is described long before in Revelation than we hear about the mark of the beast. And so we have to understand the mark of the beast in light of the mark of the lamb. Um, and we don't understand the mark of the lamb as this literal thing, but, but, and so we shouldn't understand the mark of the beast as a literal thing, but rather it symbolizes the requirement of the empire to pledge allegiance to the emperor and empire in order to participate in the market, market of buying and selling. Um, I think this is possibly a reference to the Roman coins, which bore an image of Caesar. Um, you have to have the Roman coins in order to survive, and, and so it's this nature that we have to, in order to participate in the, in order to participate in buying and selling. You have to have that mark. You have to bear that mark. Um, there's other instances where, um, where Roman citizens were, they had to be witnessed by a. Uh, by a magistrate worshiping the emperor, making a sacrifice to the emperor in order to be able to go to the market. They had to be able to, to prove that they had worshiped the emperor. Um, and that happens later on after Revelation, which obviously this seems to be a prediction for. Um, and again, we're just kind of recapping that. But that's what these people are defeating, right? They are defeating those things. They've come through without being marked by the beast. They've come through um, through uh, without worshiping the image of the beast, right? And all of those are references for John and his audience to Rome and the different power structures in Rome. All right, so um, there is a clear connection. Um, there has been the whole time, right? There's been a clear connection throughout Revelation between the plagues that we hear about the, the judgments that come from the trumpets that come from the seals breaking open. There's a clear connection to the Exodus plagues, right? There's this clear connection um, to Moses uh, here in chapter 15. We're even told that the song that they sing is the song of Moses. Okay. Exodus 14, 22, the Israelites uh, went into the sea on the dry ground and the waters forming a wall for them on their left and their right. And so where are the, where are the servants of God in, in revelation? They're on the other side of the, of the sea, right? So the sea often represents chaos and destruction in the Bible. The, 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 the followers of the Lamb are the ones who have made it through that unscathed, right? Now they've suffered, right? They've experienced suffering. It's not to say they haven't experienced suffering. They've died for their faith. Um, but they've made it to the other side um, of, of chaos, of God's judgment, right? Um, and not, not to mention it's, uh, it's a sea of glass mixed with fire. Fire is constantly... A symbol for God's judgment and revelation. So the point is, is they've made it through God's judgment um, and they've survived, right? God's judgment. And so just as the Israelites, they come to the Red Sea, it parts, they go through on dry ground, they make it to the other side. What happens to, to Pharaoh's army though when they try to go in, right? They don't make it to the other side. That, 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 ver, that version of God's justice, God's judgment swoops over them, right? Well, in chapter 15, once they reach the other side, guess what Moses does? Moses and the Israelites sing this song to the Lord, chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And it's a lot longer. But the point being that, that Moses and, and, and the people of God, when they get over to the other side, they've been rescued from, from Egypt once and, all, once and for all. Final judgment on Egypt, right? Egypt who's experienced all these plagues and not turned their back. 
and not turned away and turned towards God and repented, even that last one, they end up, you know, Pharaoh ends up changing his mind and he goes after him, right? So he's never repented, right? Now we're going to hear about that. We've already heard about that in Revelation. He refuses to repent until God's final judgment, right? Pharaoh refuses to repent until God's finally judged him completely and, and, and it's over, right? So keep that in our mind as we go forward into chapter 16 of um, Revelation. But there's a clear connection that Revelation, once again, is making to Exodus. We keep that in mind. All right. Um, and th- this is the song. Just briefly, I just make a couple notes about the song that they sing. Just like in Moses' song, the song is about God's mighty deeds and deliverance. Um, this word here, this phrase here, king of the nations, um, it's certainly, again, a claim that defies the claim of Caesar. Remember, we've talked over and over again about the Roman Empire. What are they trying to do? They want to take over the world. Pax Romana, they want to they enforce uh, Roman peace. They want to take over all the world, and they're doing it in the name of peace, um, supposedly, that if once they take over the world, they'll be able to establish their peace, but they do it through these violent means of conquering and killing and, and sub- subjugating people to their will. And so this claim of king of the nations should clearly make us um, realize that um, this is, again... Who is, who is really in charge? Is it, is it Caesar? Is it any earthly power in our world? No, it is, it is um, Christ the King, right? The Lamb. Um, if you have your, I don't know if anybody has their own Bibles open right now. Your Bible might translate that something different. If you have the King James Version, it says uh, King of the Witnesses, I think is what it says. Um, other translations say King of the Ages. And that's because there are newer transcripts of the book of Revelation. So Revelation's originally written in Greek. There was a lot of copies of them, and where that was different, it was just changed. We're not really sure why. It was just a mistranslation. But the oldest copy of Revelation, which the NRSV is using, um, is King of, King of the Nations. It's going to be the most reliably uh, accurate to what John had written written down. That's just Oh, King of the Saints. That's what, uh, that's what King James Version translates that as. All right, and then finally, this last moment, um, he talks about the temple of the witness, which is, again, the Exodus motif, right? When they get out into the wilderness, they build a, they build a tabernacle, they build a tent um, to worship. And so um, that, that tent ends up becoming sort of the model for the temple later on. And so the temple of the tent of witness, obviously a reference both to God's temple and the tabernacle that they used in um, in the uh, in the wilderness before they come to the promised land, right? So and again, another connection to that that Exodus motif. Um, the dress of the angels that we hear about, robed in pure white and linen. Just quick note is that that's a that's a pretty standard description um, of these messengers that we hear about in Daniel and Ezekiel and even in other places of Revelation. Smoke um, that's filled the temple. Again, another uh, symbol that's constantly used throughout the Old Testament to represent God's presence. Chapter 15 then ends with a vision of the Lamb's followers safely on the other side. They've made it through judgment. They've come through it. They've, uh, they're unscathed, and the angels are there with the bowls. So that's where we're at. That's where chapter 15 ends. They're there with the bowls. They're ready for judgment. Um, and then I just wanted to read this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He's, he's reflecting actually on um, Egypt and, and uh, Israelites coming, the Hebrew, Hebrew uh, people coming out of Egypt and to the other side of the shore is what he's reflecting on. But it feels relevant too as these, peop- as these saints are on the other side of the shore. He says, we must be reminded anew that God is at work in his universe. He is not outside the world looking, in, looking on with a sort of cold indifference. Here on all the roads of life, he is striving like an ever-loving father. He is working through history for the salvation of his children. 
as we struggle to defeat the forces of evil, the God of the universe struggles with us. Evil dies on the seashore, not merely because of man's endless struggle with it, but because God's power defeats it, right? So evil comes to an end. Um, I, I would go so far as to say um, not at all because of man's struggles, right? Um, not at all because of man's struggles, human struggles, but because God will defeat it. And that's the promise of Revelation, I believe. All right, let's look at chapter 16. And uh, I think I'm going to read all the way through it, and then we'll come back and walk through it. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on all the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, O holy one, who are and were, for you have judged these things, because they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar, I heard the altar respond, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch them with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God, who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are the demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the God Almighty. See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed in shame. And they, assembled there, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of the hell. So fearful was that plague. All right, so um, let's talk about these different plagues one by one. It's actually way shorter. It's funny, the bowls are way shorter. But the descriptions of them are way more intense. And so he spends less time describing them, but, he, but the words, the language that he uses signifies that they're more intense than the other plagues. So the first one is um, the first plague is a foul and painful sore. It came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. Um, this is a clear connection to the sixth plague um, of, uh, in Egypt, the plague of skin boils. They have boils that come up on their skin in, in all of Egypt, right? Um, I want you to think about this for a second. Here, I've, we've talked about there's irony throughout. Um, there's irony throughout the book of Revelation. What's the irony 
of the, this first plague in Revelation. A foul and painful sore came on all of those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. Anybody pick up on the irony there? Ironic justice is what it is, actually. These who are bearing the mark of the beast now have some new marks. (laughs) Think about that irony. He specifically describes those. He doesn't use that language for some of the other ones. He doesn't say it. He doesn't keep repeating those who are following the beast, those who have the mark of the beast. He just says it here, and it seems like there's a lot of irony there. Ironic justice, really. Those who are bearing the mark of the beast now bear another painful mark, right? And so they, they were and so that becomes the first plague for Egypt, even though it's not or, or sorry for uh, for Revelation, though in Egypt is is um is the sixth plague. Um which we see this throughout and now uh, I I don't have a I don't I meant to put a comparison up here but I forgot to do it. Um but these these line up pretty well with the trumpet plagues, okay? All right, so let's look at the second and third together. So the second and third have a, have a pretty good connection in, chapter, in verse 3 and 4. The sea became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. And then in, in 4, the fourth plague, the rivers and the springs of water became blood. So first it's the sea, the salt water, right? It becomes blood. Then the fresh waters become blood, okay? Um, so clearly a connection to the first Egyptian plague, which is the Nile River turning into blood. Now, in the second and third plague, um, is connected to the first Egyptian plague. We're also reminded of the second trumpet. So this lines up perfectly with the second trumpet again. Um, In the second trumpet, um, the water turns to blood. Now, what's interesting is that in the second trumpet, we're given specifically that two or one third, I believe. Yeah, one third of the sea life dies. What's different here? Every living thing in the sea dies. Right? So there's this clear parallel, but it's intensified. It's saying that, yeah, that judgment's still true, but it's intensified, right? So a third of the sea life dies instead of just, I mean, sorry, the whole of the sea life dies instead of just a third of it. And so here, everything in the sea dies, and this, again, intensifies the drama of the vision. So you um, said the third was in the trumpet plagues, which oh, comes okay. before here, uh, only one third of the sea life dies. Whereas here he says that all every, all the life dies. And so that's, that's a serious intensification, right? Instead of just one third, uh, three thirds. <laughs> um, so then there's this kind of interlude, um, sort of that takes place. The angel, um, sings this sort of song of praise. Um, he says, you are just, and then at the end, your judgments are true and just. We've talked about this in this series. And so I'll just, I'll just remind us, um, God's justice is just. God's judgments are just and true. And there's a lot of parts of Revelation that sound a lot like bad news, that sound a lot like very discouraging things, and they can be, um, even feel hopeless at times. But um, they are hopeless because we can trust that God's judgment is just. This is not any human executing this stuff, right? And we can take a lot of a lot of joy in knowing that this isn't given over to any human. No human is given this authority um, to, to carry out this justice, but rather God is the one who is doing it. So they are true and just judgments. We have hope and relief in that God's judgment is just. Um, these are visions that are dramatic and exaggerated, but these lines here are what really matters, that you are just, 
Your judgments are true and just. This word here, deserve, is really interesting to me. I think I've talked about this some. The most like uh, resistance that I experience when I read the book of Revelation is the times that it kind of seems like the saints, the people who have suffered, take a little bit too much pleasure in other people's suffering. It's where I have a little bit of resistance. Um, but what's interesting about this word deserve, it is what they deserve, is that it's a, it, the word also in the Greek can mean value. So let's read it that way. It is what they value. And, and here's the point. Um, God's justice, being just, um, remember, I've talked about this on numerous, numerous occasions. God doesn't just create a list of rules and say, don't do this, and if you do it, I'm going to be mad, right? Everything that God gives us as laws and rules and, and, and values that we should have in our lives are for the sake of our flourishing. God wants us to have life, right? Why does Christ come? That we might have life and have it abundantly, right? That's what God desires for us. The law, um, the, the, the um, way that Christ shows us to live, it's not because God just wanted it to be that way and, and he's mad at us for not doing it, but rather God wants us to have abundant life and he's giving us the way to have abundant life. If we don't go the way of abundant life, we're going the way of death, right? So in in Deuteronomy, the language is, see today I have set before you two things, two options. Choose life. Now for him there, he's talking about the law, right? Choose life. Um, And so God God wants us to choose the way of Christ for abundant life. Not because he likes to have a bunch of rules that he wants us to follow, but because God wants us to have, have life. And so when we are disobedient to God and we experience the wrath of God, we experience the justice of God, it's what we valued, right? If um, the, way, the way I've heard it described is if you get on the highway to go towards Atlanta, you're going to go towards Atlanta, right? If you get on the highway to go towards God's justice and and God's way of living, you're going to make it to God's way of justice and God's way of living. If you get on the highway to to go somewhere else, like the the way of death, the way of destruction, um, the way that it's described earlier in the book is those who destroy the earth are destroyed. God destroys those who destroy creation, right? And so if you're a destroyer, you are destroyed, right? So it's the way that, that we're choosing. And so that language of deserve specifically is that they chose it. They chose that path. They're now getting what that path led them to, right? And so that's really important. I think that's an important thing. Um, this is a measure for measure punishment. And so in the Old Testament, you hear an eye for an eye. Um, but as we know, as, as Christians, Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. Right. And so I think that that's, again, once once again, a reminder that God's not given this to humans, to Christians, to followers of Jesus to do. There's they're on the other side of the the sea of glass. Right. But instead, it's God. Um, God is the one dealing out this this um, measure for measure justice. It's, It's really just a result of their own living. Right. So Revelation should never be an endorsement for violence by Christians. I think that's important. It's always the lamb followers are never the ones um, dosing out God's justice, right? All right, let's see. I probably need to pick it up a little bit. All right, so um, just as uh, the the second and third have kind of a connection to the to just one Egyptian plague, so do, so did the next two. Um, so the fourth and fifth bowl plagues. Um, so the first there, or the the fourth rather, is the sun. Um, it, it was allowed to scorch them for fire. So the the bowl was poured out onto the sun. And the sun is allowed to scorch them with fire. Now, there's no plague in in, Revel- in, or in Egypt where something like this happens. 
But there is an, an effect, um, which is the next one, which is its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And so in the ninth plague, the Egyptian plague, first, it is, it's just pure darkness, right? And so, again, it's an intensification of even the Egyptian plagues. First, there is almost fuel added to the sun, right, with the pouring out of the bowl, which intensifies the heat um, that causes people to suffer. And so it's an effect on the light on the light of the day, right? And so afterwards, there is darkness. Um, it's interesting that... Um, that this is described as happening to the kingdom. The kingdom was plunged into darkness, right? Um, which is the case for Egypt, right? It's the kingdom of Egypt that's plagued into darkness. Well, uh, uh, John's going to be thinking specifically about the kingdom of Babylon, which is his code word for Rome, right? So that's what, if he says king or kingdom, that's what he's talking about. Um, let's uh, pause for a second as we're looking at these and say, and say but after both of these plagues, once again, we hear John say, they cursed the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. Again, in the next one, they cursed the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. Now, we've heard this in Revelation before already, where the people receive the plagues and they don't repent. But this is exactly what happens with Pharaoh. Pharaoh receives the plagues. He says he's going to repent. Then he says, never mind, right? He does not actually repent. He never repents, right? Until final judgment happens on him, there's no repentance. The same thing that we're seeing here. For Babylon, for the people of Babylon, they do not repent, um, and, and final judgment will come upon them because of that, right? They do not repent. And the fact that John specifically says they do not repent says that there was a door open, right? That there's an intention in these plagues. The plagues of Egypt intent, were intended to get e, uh, Egypt to release the people, right? There was a goal there for them to repent. It didn't work, though, right? And so there's final judgment that, that comes upon Egypt. Well, in the same way, the goal seen of these plagues clearly seems to be the hope that people will repent. Um, but we're told here in, with the bowls that they do not repent. They refuse to repent. As a matter of fact, they curse or blaspheme the name of God even more. All right, let's come to the sixth plague. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, and I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming. So a clear reference to the second plague in the Egypt where frogs come out of the, the Nile River. Okay, um, let's, look at, let's explore this one for just a little bit. So this is Armageddon. This is the other two bowls, by the way, um, six and seven. Um, so we're going to get into Armageddon a little bit um, in this discussion. So let me, let me just look at this again, chapter, or verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Have we heard about the, the river Euphrates in the book of Revelation yet? Guess when it was? It was when we were in the, uh, the uh, sixth trumpet. All right? Sixth trumpet talks about Euphrates. The sixth bowl talks about Euphrates. Okay? Now, if you remember, what that was about with the trumpets is that the, the message comes, um, uh, the, the, those four angels that are bound at the Euphrates. Remember that, now these weren't good angels. These were evil angels. Okay? They were e evil angels bound at the river, river Euphrates. If you remember in that lesson, we talked about how Euphrates is really significant um, because Euphra the Euphrates River is right here. Now, all this over here is the Roman Empire. You remember what empire this is? This is the uh, Parthians. Right? Now, Parthians are famous for being this kind of small empire compared to the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire just could not defeat. They were constantly causing problems. Well, the Euphrates River happens to be exactly where the Roman Empire and the Persian or the uh, Parthian Empire split. 
um, for the people of God specifically. Remember Jerusalem and all is down here. So Judea is there. The Euphrates River comes down here. That's really where, uh, especially up here, where the Roman Empire splits from the, the Parthian Empire. And so if we hear about the, the, uh, if we hear about the Euphrates uh, River, we have to understand that for Romans, for people who lived in Rome, they knew that was the split. That was the dividing line between the Parthians and the Romans. And the Parthians were notorious um, uh, enemies of Rome. And so we can, um, we can be pretty sure that this vision is meant, meant for John, that the Euphrates drying up, what would happen if the Euphrates dries up? That allows a quick passage for the Parthians to come through and attack Rome, right? And so the Euphrates drying up allowed Rome's enemies to gather together. The battle for Armageddon, um, it's pronounced Armageddon in uh, the NRSV, um, and I'll, you'll see why in just a minute, why they pronounce it that way. Um, the frog, demon, spirits represent Rome's influence in the world, right? So how do they respond? Um, so, the, so the Euphrates dries up in order to prepare a way for the kings from the east, Okay, Euphrates is to the east of the Roman Empire, right? Okay, so from the east, these enemies from the east are going to come to the Roman Empire. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouths of the dragon, a clear connection to the Egyptian plagues, from the mouth of the beast and from the, the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the rest of the kings in the world. Now, not the kings of the east, okay? We need to understand the kings of the east are united against Rome, but Rome still has a, a clear influence in the world. Um, a lot of people who have not been conquered by Rome yet would probably still bow to Rome's wishes because they don't want to be conquered by Rome. And so uh, these demonic spirits, they go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God's army, of God Almighty. Um, and then we have this break where, where this message from Christ, See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, so once again, we see the unholy trinity here. They're the, they're the real power behind the Roman Empire, behind the empires of the world. Now, Armageddon is mentioned one time in Revelation. One time. You hear me? Armageddon, Armageddon, one time. Right there. That's it. John doesn't talk about Armageddon anymore. And so the, my point there, and, and, and just kind of being facetious, is that the... the uh, the theme of Armageddon has been blown way out of proportion to what John talks about it. This is the only place in Scripture where the word Armageddon appears. The meaning is a little bit difficult, but, but most at this point assume that it refers to a site where um, significant battles have occurred. It seems to be a combination of two Hebrew words. Um, the first is har. Now, the first, and it says in Hebrew, right? That's what John specifically says. In, in Hebrew, its name is Harmageddon. Har in the Hebrew means mountain or hill. Megiddo is a place. If you read your Old Testament, if you read the book of Judges, if you read Kings, you're going to hear about uh, Megiddo. It's an ancient city that guarded the pass through the central highlands at the Jezreel Valley. Megiddo was a strategic military location that becomes important to the Canaanites and then Israelites. It is where Deborah and Barak, if you know that story, they defeated the armies of Canaan in, um, at Megiddo. All right? Now, the reason that he probably says the hill or the mountain is that by this point, we're in the first century, Megiddo has existed as a city since 6,000 BC, most likely. And now what happened is it was such a good location. It was such a good military site for a city that any time that it got destroyed by armies, 
the next people that conquer that area would just build a new city directly on top of it. It's called a, um, oh, what's the word? Now I can't remember the word. I didn't write, write it down. But there, there's a word for it where there's a particular significance to one site. So much so that, that people will pile up on top of it and they'll build their city on top of it. And what ends up happening is you end up having a hill that's kind of human-made, right? A human-made hill because people have continued to build in that one spot because it was such a good strategic spot, right? So um, again, um, part of what's significant about it, why would, why would John say that this is where the, the battle is? Because this place was such a strategic military site, a lot of, a lot of final battles happen here. So this battle with Deborah and Barak, this was really like a final battle between them and, and the particular king that they were fighting. When they won that battle, it was done. Um, and so there were, there were several others. Um, Ahab actually dies at um, uh, Megiddo. If you read about Ahab, the, the, the evil king, he dies there. He has his final stand there. Um, there's another, uh, Jahab. Je, uh, Jahab, is that the right word, right name? Anyway, one of the other Israelite kings. So the point being is that it, it kind of becomes this place where different kings, different armies have their final stand. And why is that significant for the sixth plague, right? We're wrapping this all up, okay? We're wrapping all this judgment, um, these plagues up, right? And so it's where the final battle, that the final defeat of evil is going to happen. That's really, that, that in my mind is what that scene represents. It's a symbol for God's final justice and defeat of evil. Um, again, John directs this plague at the great city Babylon, his codename for Rome. Um, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. He's directing it specifically to, to Babylon. Um, N.T. Wright says this. Oh, that's the last plague, I guess, isn't it, that I'm talking about there? Oh, that was, there we go. Yes, okay, sorry. I, I, I must have jumped over this. All right, finally, the last plague after that is there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a violent earthquake, and then the, uh, the, the uh, hail comes as well. So that's the sixth, the, the seventh Egyptian plague of hail and thunder that happens there. That's the um, replication. Again, the, the flashes of lightning, the thunder, the earthquakes, that is a typical symbol in, throughout the Old Testament and in, in re, uh, throughout the Bible and in Revelation of God's, uh, God's judgment, God's final judgment. And, and, and final presence. So the great, so this is um, again a part of that that last plague. The great city was split into three parts. Now the great city is Babylon, great Babylon. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away. No mountains were to be found, and a huge hailstone, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from the heaven on people, until once again they cursed God for the plague of the hell. So fearful was that plague. Again, John directs the plague at the great city Babylon, his code name for Rome. What John will turn, turn to in the following chapters, what we'll get, start getting into next week, will be Babylon. And so this final chapter is really focusing in on Babylon, and then, um, then we're going to get an even more detailed description of what God's judgment against Babylon looks like. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, so we'll start that next week. We'll spend a few, a couple, few chapters in that, the fall of Babylon. And so again, that's what will be, um, that's where John turns his attention after this plague that's directed to him. So N.T. Wright says this, and, and this really is getting into, again, the topic of God's wrath, the God, topic of God's judgment. He says, the wrath of the creator God consists of two things. All right, we see God's wrath embodied in two ways, really. Um, first, he allows human wickedness to work itself out. 
Again, this is what we talked about earlier. To reap its own destruction, right? They, they get what they value. They get what they deserve. They chose that path. That's the result that they got. So, so God allows that to happen. God allows human wickedness to work itself out, to reap its own destruction. We say that it's God's judgment. I'm going to keep pausing while I'm in the middle of this. We say that it's God's judgment. God is doing this to, to, to them. But in a lot of cases, which we'll get into that in a minute, a lot of cases, it's just the results of living, right? If you live in a certain way, we might see that way that what we get in the end as punishment. But in reality, it's just that was the way that we were going, right? If I, if I don't treat my body well my whole life, in the end, I might say, well, I'm dying because of heart problems because God's punishing me. But in reality, it's I lived unhealthy, right? I didn't take care of myself, right? And so, um, so that, that's one way that God's justice works out, one way God's wrath works out. We, we refer to it as God's wrath. In reality, it's just the result of our, of our own way of living. But then there is a time, thanks be to God, um, that God will step in. Um, the, the second way that we hear about God's wrath and God's justice in the book of Revelation is he steps in more directly to stop it, to call time on it when he gets out of hand. If we knew our business, we would thank God for both of these, even though both can appear harsh. They need to be. If they were any less than harsh, the wickedness in question would merely pause, furrow its brow for a moment, and then carry on as before. And so the point being is that we, we see these two ways that God's wrath, God's justice, God's judgment appears. And, and the first is, is that if we live in sin, we reap, the, we reap what sin gives us. Sin's not just because God doesn't like us doing something, but it's if we do things, um, we're going to get what those things give us, right? Um, but then there is going to be a time where God is going to put an end to it, um, to, to evil as a whole, and, and say, that's it. That's it. And that's what, that's what kind of what Armageddon represents, right? Um, we think of it as this literal scary battle that's going to happen somewhere in the Middle East or something. But in reality, it's just a symbol that represents that final time that God will fully defeat evil. Um, no Christians, no witness. I mean, th- there's no description of Armageddon as the witnesses kind of coming together and taking up swords and going and killing people, right? That's not the image that we get, but rather it's this image of God, God finally defeating evil. Um, and so I don't think Revelation, we should see Revelation as endorsing any form of Christian violence, but rather um, that, we, um, that we are, if we stay faithful to God, we are actually um, rescued from that violence, right? Um, again, not to say that we're rescued from tribulation. We experience tribulation. We experience trials. We experience persecution. Um, but we are rescued from God's judgment, um, the wrath that comes upon creation because of human sin. All right, let's think about these uh, questions for reflection. I think i got about 10 minutes. All right, they're on the back of your sheet as well. First question is, is how does the picture of God that we find in this chap- these chapters reshape the way we understand the nature of love and our idea of how God extends his love to us? That's a mouthful, so if you want to read it, it's on your own sheet. That might help you think of answers a little bit better. to say that, you know, it's not just God gives us 
what you know the law, the rules, and if we don't, if we break them, God's just mad at us. But rather, like God wants us to have life, right? God gives us the choice to go the way of life, and if we choose to go the other way, then we shouldn't be surprised when we arrive at death, right? Yeah. I think we uh, we saw in this section where he was very he he constantly is trying yeah. to yeah. bring people back to himself, right? And and you know, we wonder why he tarries. Well, he's tarrying because he wants to see as many come mm-hmm. to him as possible. And that's what he's doing here. Yeah. Yeah, there is this nature of this, these plagues being for the purpose of repentance. Not always, not always um, resulting in that. It's hard. So Jesus gives us a kind of random in the middle of the play commandment. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but he says, um, he says, see, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame. Now, the reason, John, the reason it's in quotes is because we've heard Jesus say this earlier. It's in one of the messages to the church. He talks about this. See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed in shame. Um, So how do we also need to wake up to what is happening around us in the world? Again, you are always going to hear me challenge us in this way. It can be easy as us Christians to read these texts and say, the world, you need to listen to this. You need to do this. You need to do that. Turn those fingers back towards ourselves for a minute and say, how do we need to wake up? How do we Christians need to wake up? Are there ways in which that we might be falling asleep um, to what is going on around us in the world? Can we get our priorities mixed up? Hmm. By, by not... Uh, by... <coughs> by... Instead of focusing on the people and and the truth, we want to focus on other things like uh, I'm going to say politics, right? And things that really don't matter to the salvation of man. We focus on the wrong things, the wrong issues, the wrong. Instead of focusing on what we need to focus on, which is which is waking up to what's really going on. Yeah. Well, and when we look around and we see the collapse of different political economic systems, right? Many of us in the West might have a preference for certain economic systems, capitalism, right? And we might start feeling worried when we start hearing other people who might have different ideas about how the econ- economics should work and how our country should be doing things economically. We get worried and we scared and we want to get defensive and we want to protect those things that we love the most, political parties, political people, pol- you know, politicians, different, different systems. And we can get real nervous and we can get real scared. Right, and I think that part of what you're saying, Pastor Kevin, what I hear you saying, how I, how I feel about it is, is that we we are getting distracted by that if we think that we are supposed to protect those things at all cost. There are people protecting those things at all cost, 
um, Christians who are protecting those different things at all costs to violent ends. Um, and, and we as, as believers, we're getting distracted, right? If we think our hope is in capitalism, if we think our hope is in any politician, if we think our hope is in any worldly system, um, then we are definitely getting distracted. Now, again, I, I will push back a little bit and say that politics matters, right? And I don't think you're saying that. Yeah. Politics matters, right? Because politics is just dealing with humans, right? Um, polity, deal, like working in the – polity means uh, city, the city, the polis, right? Um, how, how are we operating in the world? This is important. As Christians, we want to operate ethically. We want to vote ethically. We want to vote with how it affects people. We want to keep that in mind. And so we want, we want to be involved. But if we think we've got to protect those systems, you know, with our lives, with other people's lives, you know, um, then, then we might be slipping into idolatry, right? You might be thinking that, oh, capitalism's our savior, you know, whatever political ideology is our savior, right? And that's where we are. I think we might be um, falling asleep to what's really going on. Wait, we need to wake up. Um, Hope I don't get in too much trouble for any of that. I feel like I was pretty safe there. Um, as we consider the news of the impending collapse of the world, this gets into what I was just saying. As we consider the news of the impending collapse of the world's idolatrous systems, its economic, social, environmental, and political systems, what does it mean to be faithful in the present? So maybe a response to what I was just saying as well. What, what does it mean for us to be faithful in the present? We should always be thinking of God and and also let people see Jesus in you. And uh, be sure, you know, you get a chance to tell people about Jesus too. Yeah. Um, And all of us are, I know I am, I'm not that good at that. Mm. Yeah. uh, And I feel at that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Um, Yeah, we've. I know I'm guilty of it as well, feeling uncomfortable, you know, not wanting to, to sacrifice comfort and, and all. And we, we do need to be aware of that, um, that resistance in ourselves. That's good. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, let me, let me, uh, Pastor Kevin, will you pray for us? Let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to to look at another section of Revelation. And we pray that you would keep this in our hearts so that we can, can continue to think on these things so that we can concentrate more on your will for our lives as opposed to, to other things that may be distracting us. Help us as we study this week, as we study on in, in, in Revelation, to, to be able to hear your word through what's being spoken by you. Be with us as we go. Keep us safe. We be with those with the requests that we mentioned earlier that you would just guide and direct in every situation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.